Good afternoon and welcome to Taking Ship, a podcast about cultural politics, political culture, and why a fool and his political capital are soon parted. I'm Frank Spring. With me is Ellie Jacobs, who knows triumph and disaster and punches those two imposters in the face. Hi, Ellie. Hey, Frank. I want to thank everybody who has listened to the episode so far and the folks who have uh, subscribed already. It's great. Everybody else also needs to subscribe. Please rate us and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And obviously, be sure to follow us on Twitter at, at @takingship, and that's ship with a P as in perjury. Today, we're going to be joined by our good friend Jim Arcadis a little bit later, in about 20 minutes or so. Jim is the president of Arcadis Strategies, an international strategic communications and political consulting firm. He is also the president of Ford DPAC, a multi-candidate hard money political action committee that endorses and supports strong, smart, progressive national, national security candidates for Congress and Senate, of which I am a donor. Previously, he ran the National Security Project at the Progressive Policy Institute and was a Defense Department counterterrorism analyst. Uh, We'll get into some of that with uh, Jim a little bit later. He is also the co-author of a book called Political Mercenaries, which I have on my bookshelf and have actually read. Um, And with that, let's dive right into the news of the day, Frank. All right, so before we get to the news of the day, a word about the news of the day. And the problem with the news of the day, the news of the day because of the way this administration works is increasingly the news of the hour. This is like the second or third time we're recording this segment because we're going to talk about everyone's favorite public servant, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III. The problem is events around Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III are moving pretty fast. Uh, They have moved fast again since we started recording this segment for the podcast. We've had to record it again. Uh, and they may have, but we, we can't, you know, unless we're going to sit here together recording this thing and endlessly recording it to keep up with events until the sun goes out, uh, we're going to have to stop recording and actually release this podcast at some point. Uh, so things may have changed. They almost certainly will have changed between, uh, the time that we finished this segment and, uh, and, and the time that it's released with respect to, again, everyone's favorite public servant, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions, the third. So. Oh, Jeff. Oh, Jeff. He's come a terrible cropper for misleading, for lying to the Senate Judiciary Committee during his confirmation. Uh, During that meeting, uh, during that confirmation hearing, he said that he did not meet with the Russians during the campaign. Uh, And in fact, the Washington Post later broke that he met with the Russian ambassador twice, including once during the Republican National Convention in Cleveland. Uh, Earlier this afternoon, Donald Trump expressed his full confidence in, uh, in Jeff Sessions, which if this were a college football program and Sessions were the head coach would mean that he's absolutely toast. Uh, it's all over for him. Uh, this is not necessarily a college football program, or if it is, it's not clear what kind. That's a subject for another day. Uh, but the it's not one that went to a bowl, I'll tell you that for nothing. Uh, the response to this, the Dems have been pretty clear uh, and, and surprisingly unified on and on message, which is not always the case for a party. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and others, uh, Kamala Harris, uh, Tom Paris, the newly elected chair of the DNC, uh, or, or uh, came out calling for uh, uh, for uh, Sessions to resign. Uh, and there'll be more on Tom Paris and his election as DNC chair in a future podcast. Uh, so a lot of the leadership of the party called for his resignation. Uh, there were there was another uh, loud call uh, for uh, for him to recu- for Sessions to recuse himself from any investigations into uh, the Trump campaign and its connections to Russia, and uh, not just from safe seat Democrats. Uh, Joe Manchin, 
uh, stood up and uh, first called for recusal and then was was escalating toward resignation talk. So uh, Dems largely on message calling for uh, Sessions to resign as attorney general, others uh, swinging in strongly behind with a call for him to recuse himself from any investigations into Russia. Yeah, it's uh, interesting to note that Democrats have been calling for him to recuse himself for weeks now, um, and now it just happened within the last hour. Um, and it took this, um, this idea that he, that he it seemingly perjured himself in front of the Judiciary Committee uh, to actually get him to do it. Um, but I think that Dems really can need to twist to push a little bit farther away from this resignation kind of fantasy, let's be honest about it, and go directly to the issue of getting Trump's taxes and pushing for a full-blown independent investigation, something like the 9-11 Commission, where you get a whole bunch of smart people uh, with long experience who are bipartisanly uh, respected to run this thing. I think the names of Sandra Day O'Connor and Colin Powell have popped up a couple different places as people to lead this thing. Um, and that's what Dems need to do. You know, there's a lot of smoke blowing around this whole thing, um, and it's getting difficult to see if there actually may or may not be fire. And the thing that's, the, to continue my metaphor, the kindling behind that fire is the tax returns, because that's where it'll act, we'll actually find out what exactly Trump's business ties are to the Russians. You know, the dossier aside and whatever sort of suggestions there are that Putin and the KGB, or the former, the FET, the former KGB, um, have some sort of leverage over him because of some, you know, uh, acts that, that they recorded or whatever happened in Russia. The bottom line is, is the taxes are the only way to find out whether or not there's actually business relationships there. We know that Jared has business relationships there. And we know from Trump's sons that there's likely business relationships there. And uh, as we'll, we'll talk about a little bit in a little bit with, with Jim, we'll talk about the taxes and other ways to try to go about getting them. But I think the Dems really need to turn this directly onto that. Let's put it back on Trump's shoulders. Let's put it back on trying to see what's in those taxes and push for an independent commission. That's right. And I think uh, my sense is that, that that probably the push for resignation is, A, a legitimate call for this guy to, to resign. And frankly, he, he should have resigned the instant he got in from being a, a, a you know, a, a, a long condemned uh, racist and uh, and being generally opposed to civil rights, which is a bad look for um, which is a bad look for the Attorney General of the United States. But there you have it. Uh, this is you know the, no th this may be what he goes down for. Uh, so there's where the Democrats are. I think so the calls for resignation are probably to create some space uh, so that they can uh, better so they can better negotiate what the investigation looks like. So first you call for the guy's head and then later you call, then later you negotiate for what his prosecution looks like. At least that's the direction that we can kind of hope that this takes. Um, so that's where the Democrats have been. The GOP, uh, after a brief period of internal peace following uh, Trump's uh, successful, and if you listen to our, our last podcast, you'll know that I'm using the word successful, uh, torturing the word almost past recognition. Uh, after Trump's successful speech on television, uh, the GOP fell completely apart uh, as soon as this news broke. Uh, Lindsey Graham went, uh, was on television. He called for Sessions to recuse himself from future investigations. Uh, Rob Portman, Susan Collins in the Senate, also Republicans in the Senate also called for him to recuse himself from future future investigations into Russia and the Trump campaign. In the House, uh, Jason Chaffetz and a handful of uh, House Republicans, all of whom have something in common. Uh, it, it is not their... 
moral conscience or commitment to uh, or commitment to principle or process. It is, of course, the fact that they're vulnerable in their reelection campaigns. Uh, we're calling for uh, Sessions to recuse himself from investigations. Then Graham walked back his remarks a little bit, saying, "Well, we really need more information before we can make a determination on recusal." Uh, Marco Rubio waffled spectacularly. I mean, the man, the man in the Olympics could could waffle for America. He really is a champion. Uh, Kevin McCarthy went on uh, went out this morning and said uh, that Jeff Sessions should resign, should recuse himself, and then walked that back. And then after all of that. Sessions himself held a press conference this afternoon and announced that he's recusing himself from any future uh, investigations into relationships between the Trump campaign and Russia. His own line on what happened here is he is admitting no fault, uh, no fault at all. Uh, but his line is that he didn't speak to the Russian ambassador about campaign matters. And that's why his his uh, his answer was truthful. You know, he spoke to him about other things, but he didn't talk about the campaign. And therefore, the fact that he denied speaking to the Russians at all and in total uh, was actually apparently entirely true. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those things where you really can't believe a public servant is going out on a limb and trying to parse words just this much. Um, the, one of the meetings took place at the RNC, and especially if it was just a run-in in the hallway, which is the way it's sort of being described by some people, there's, it's not a credible claim to say they didn't speak about the campaign. You're at the RNC, you probably just saw Mike Pence or Donald Trump or Ivanka Trump or, some, or Rudy Giuliani or Mike Flynn give a speech. You're going to talk about the speech, which is about the campaign. This isn't like rocket science to recognize that it, it, it's just not credible to say that there was no discussion of the campaign. And that's the problem because he didn't parse the answer when Franken asked him and he didn't parse the answer when Leahy asked for a follow-up in writing and he responded no. So the fact that he didn't ask for clarification while under oath in front of the Judiciary Committee kind of you know tightened the noose around his own neck and he's now said that he's going to go back and clarify his answers to them. But that's a little bit, that's a way too little, way too late. Yeah, there's a. I mean, for those uh, who've been around, been around this a little, you'll know that there's when someone gives Senate testimony, they are exhaustively prepared, and so they're you know they're prepared, they're exhaustively prepared, not for the questions they're going to receive. It was pre, you know they had to have known this question that there would be a question about Russia, and indeed they did know. Because Sessions volunteered that he hadn't met with the they hadn't met with the Russians, uh, you know the question that you know we can, the, the question that Franken asked was about what he would do if it turned out that uh, members of the Trump campaign had met had had conversations with the Russians during the campaign, uh, and and Sessions and you know, took it upon himself to say that he hadn't met with the Russians, uh, so he was prepared for the question, he was prepared to deny it in total, and then after so you prepare for it, you give your testimony, and then afterward there's an opportunity for your own side to issue clarifications in writing. Uh, and they they took a pass on that. So I mean, it it is this whole thing just the idea that this this just doesn't hold water, and especially the idea that the Russian ambassador to meet with a Trump campaign surrogate during the Republican National Convention and there'd be no political talk at all uh, that that just doesn't hold water. And that this may not be enough to save him uh, if there's an investigation if there is an investigation and someone has to go down. Because Sessions, as much help as he was to the Trump campaign, to Trump during the campaign, and he really, really tried to make himself useful. Uh, he's not part of the long-established inner circle of Trump that works out of the West Wing, uh, and so if, if if someone has to go uh, for this thing, uh, you know, I would say that his head may be first on the block. Yeah. Speaking of which, uh, the Keystone cops and the White House Communications Department are back at it, uh, as you said in our in, in the intro. Uh, news is kind of happening 
as we're recording this, um, the White House is trying to get out in front of this uh, kind of with, like I said, Keystone Cops communications response plan. Um, they uh, went to the New York Times and willingly told the Times that Kushner and Flynn met with the Russian envoy in December. Um, and interestingly, I mean, this is a little bit when you get really inside baseball. Uh, interestingly, the spokes- spokesperson from the White House that uh, spoke with the Times is Hope Hicks, who is a longtime Trump aide um, and generally not somebody that you, whose name you see in print uh, as an on-the-record spokesperson, uh, which I found just sort of interesting as a technical point. But, I mean, the way you basically see this playing out is some genius at the White House said, oh, shit, who else met with the Russians since the election? Someone else, you know, went and looked at the calendars and said, God damn it, Jared met with them. So, you know, Frank, as you just said, somebody's going to end up going down, and you know for sure it's not going to be the son-in-law. So they're trying to get out in front of this, of, you know, let's call it what it is. This is a full-blown scandal at this point. Um, it already sort of was uh, with the Russian uh, hacking, became even more so with Flynn, it became, and now it's even more so with this. Uh, the real trouble is, um, as anybody that does this professionally, in order to be able to get in front of something, you really have to have a pretty good grasp of the facts. And it just doesn't seem like they have that at all. Uh, so we'll see what happens in the next, you know, 12 hours before this gets posted online. But uh, right now, I would say that the White House went from having a, a really good day to a really, really bad day. All right, with that, we're going to uh, uh, bring in uh, Jim Arcadis. And uh, we recorded this uh, a few hours ago because uh, Jim's out of the country and it was uh, we needed to do this on his schedule, which made life a little bit easier. Uh, and we're going to play that in full. Uh, we're going to keep our sort of intro part a little bit shorter, uh, just because this is a great conversation with Jim and we want to play it uh, in full for everybody. All right, we're going to bring in our guest, Jim Arcadis, the president of 4DPAC, which you can learn more about at 4DPAC.com. Jim is joining us from Tunisia as he continues the Star Wars Hajj and visits Tatooine. Frank has promised to withhold any and all comments, degradation, and smack talk about Notre Dame for Jim's sake, not for mine, but for Jim's. I agreed to no such thing. You will take my Notre Dame jokes from my cold, dead hands, gentlemen. <laughs> Welcome to Taking Thanks. Ship, Jim. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. Uh, uh, Tatooine, I've learned on this trip, is really far south, so there's no way I'll be able to get there this time. There's always next time. <laughs> there is. There might be. There might be. Yeah. So let's... While on the subject of Tunisia, tell us, uh, where are you now and why? Uh, I am on a short-term contract for the National Democratic Institute, as it's uh, more widely known, uh, doing, working with, uh, every, with a, a range of political parties, basically, in, from their office in Tunis. Um, they have a mandate, obviously, as a nonprofit organization. Madeleine Albright is the chair uh, so they've got a mandate basically to work with political party parliaments throughout wherever they have office with anybody who doesn't officially espouse as part of their platform. So left center or whatever anybody happens to be in between on whatever the ideological spectrum is in that country, uh, that's where they operate and are happy to work with anyone. Um, I've gotten the opportunity. I this is my third time here and it's it's really it's it's amazing i get to do political party trainings mostly centered on uh, political communication and voter contact um which is a lot of fun and you get to teach you know what what to you and me might be some fairly basic stuff about how do you you know put put a political message together and how do you make sure that people understand that and what are the mechanisms that people use to get those political messages out 
And you teach them to people in a developing democracy who want to be involved in that country and uh, just sort of see their eyes light up in front of you. And, you know, they're excited to learn some things that they've never really had exposure to. And, and, you know, it's fascinating to go see them apply it in their, you know, campaigns. So it's, it's a really good experience. That's awesome. And you, you talked a little bit about this, but I want to uh, drill down just briefly. What is a day in the life like when you're uh, when you're in Tunisia for India or somewhere like Tunisia for NDI? Yeah, um, it's, uh, you know, uh, can be usually the more the most exciting days. I guess I've been here for a week now and I think I've done four full days of training. So you uh, the the team here arranges a training with uh, a political party. Uh, I think I've worked now with three different political parties. I met with one political party twice, um, but three different parties, and they arrange for a block of time, either a half a day or a full day, and then it's my job to put together a training program uh, on whatever they want to learn about that I happen to know about. So most of the time it's political communication, um, but uh, I've also I get out the vote session uh, <laughs> the other night, a session on party formation rules and regulations, which I'm not an expert on, but you the know, real sexy the stuff. Consult. Yeah, yeah. The real, if the rule is you've got to know 10% more than your audience, I think I barely eclipsed that, that, that <laughs> threshold. <laughs> but basically, you know, you do, you go through the, uh, you go through the program. Uh, it's, it's also like there's just an incredible hunger for, you know, everything that happened in 2016 in the U.S. And so a lot of the rule political communication that I use are sort of based on the 2016 campaign and how Democrats didn't communicate very well all the time and uh, use those as kind of the basis of what I'm talking about. And then you show some practical examples, ads, that sort of thing about how you take a centralized message and then address it to various audiences. How much of your experience in American politics uh, applies in, in an instance like Tunisia? How much is transferable, do you think? Um, well, if you started basically, and let's not forget these guys had a revolution in 2011. They, they had no experience with pluralistic democracy for decades before that. And so when you show up and now all of a sudden, you know, you know, having worked in a couple developing democracies, you know, there is such a constant uh, reformation and breaking apart and then regrouping of all the various political actors as they kind of try to settle in to where they are on the ideological spectrum, which is, of course, vastly different from what the United States is, you know, is and thinks about in a traditional left-right context. But, uh, you know, th- there's this constant regrouping of, of all the political actors as they try and, you know, seek, seek advantage. And then they then, uh, you know, they, they try and work together to try and uh, figure out, you know, what their message is for the upcoming campaign. And so there's uh, so much of what we do on a constant basis is applicable because we're, we're talking about really basic stuff. I mean, you, th- you take it for granted that you know how to form a basic political message, which is, why did I decide to campaign this year? You know, what, what do I have to add? And even explaining something so basic as that to, you know, to, to people who are involved in politics uh, is, is something that sort of says, oh, yeah, okay. So that, that's the first question to answer, because in developing democracies especially, the, the idea is that they, they think that a political message is your platform. Like, let's list the 10 things that we're going to do when we get elected, as opposed to why am I here and how am I, I going to make life better for people? 
And this, but it's interesting that it is a problem in, in developing democracies. You could also make the argument that's a problem in mature democracies, and as, you know, especially for progressives, where you know our sort of you know I've seen this in the UK and the US, where our response is you know, the first thing you do often, often with people who've gotten pretty far down their careers. If you ask them why they're running, they'll list well these are the three issues that I really care about. It's, you know, that's they list again a, a summary of their platform. So in that sense, I think that's a problem in developing democracies as well as, but also in developed ones. Uh, can you, sorry, go ahead. No, well, I, I mean, I was thinking, so the, what I've used as sort of the basis of a lot of my presentations is the idea that the Clinton camp almost went to the other side of that issue where they, they thought that their message could be so targeted to the individual groups and members of the, co the progressive coalition that were going to carry the campaign to victory that they forgot about the very basic idea of targeting their, their, you know, why am I running in this campaign message to voters in Ohio and Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, you know? And so they didn't, they had these, you know, economic messages that were targeted to women when we were talking about, you know, paid maternity leave or, or you know, that we're talking to, uh, you know, Hispanics about immigration reform and anti-Trump stuff, or we're talking to African-American voters about continuing the Obama tradition and things like that. But there wasn't this big uh, overarching economic message that were, that were targeting, you know, that targeted effectively and explained the reason the campaign existed to the people who ultimately swung the, the election in the other direction. Yeah, Frank and I talked a little bit about that, about that in our inaugural episode with Sonia. Um, and, you know, it kind of really boils down to the, the fact that if you drop somebody in from planet Mars and you showed them uh, two seconds of a Trump campaign where he kept saying, make America great again, make America great again, people understand what that means. They don't necessarily understand exactly how he's going to do that or what that means. But that's a pretty lofty goal and something that everybody can get behind. You do the same for a Clinton speech. You don't understand why she's doing anything. Because it sounds great to that crowd then, or it's a continuation of something that was really popular that President Obama did, or an improvement on that. There was never a really good converse, discussion the way you're describing it. It was all so micro-targeted that they lost the they lost the forest for the trees. Yeah. So one of, in one of the presentations, I, do, I I talk about you know how, how de deeply flawed and racist the Trump message was. I mean, let's let's leave that you know aside. Yeah. But in terms of targeting a message towards, you know, the middle class about about essentially wage differentiation and the fact that, you know, they they've been they, they're not making much people in the middle class in the West are not making as much as they were 10 or 15 years or 20 years ago. Right. Um, when so I do a comparison of like Trump's inaugural, you know, uh, 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 speech where he announces he's running to one of his campaigns in the middle to like his speech at the end of the campaign. Right. His final closing message. And there's consistency across that yeah. where then I do the same thing. And I say, here's Hillary's announcement advertisement, which is pretty good on that message. And then Trump becomes so obnoxious and she sort of got knocked off a little bit by by the, the Sanders message that all of a sudden, the you know, obviously the message morphs into these micro targeted messages uh, sort of encircled by a larger, you know, anti Trump. Isn't this guy horrible and a racist message? And then you look at her closing two-minute ad, which is basically, you know, what kind of country do we want this to be, which I, I totally get. And for right. me, that resonates. But if you're worried about making money and how the economy sort of advanced and, 
and you know you're not doing as well as you once were that's a big problem and you know it's just startling to see the consistency of trump's message on at least an sort of implicit economic level compared with the the metamorphosis consistent con- if there's one thing consistent about the clinton campaign message is it, it's it's amorphosis across the year and a half of the campaign but so anyway I, I try and integrate that in a lot of the the teaching that i've done over the last couple of weeks here to show people about the importance of having a consistent message yeah yeah um frank you want to move on from tunisia or you want to keep going on let's, let's just stick tunisia. with tunisia for, for <laughs> one more second because i you know it's it, tunisia is the birthplace of the arab spring uh, the you know the the first of the of the countries to to throw off their uh, dictatorial regimes uh, during that that movement. Uh, and what is your sense? So now it's it's now six years since the Arab Spring. Uh, sometimes it, it seems like it just occurred yesterday in some respects. Uh, Jim, what is your sense if you're in a position to comment on kind of the state of Tunisia and the state of Tunisian democracy? I mean, as you mentioned. This is a place that doesn't really have a history of participatory democracy. So how is that experiment going? Um, there is the there's certainly a feeling of uh, raised expectations in the immediate wake of the revolution that have led to kind of a feeling of despair that change hasn't come quickly enough. Um, one of the aspects, I was not directly involved in this aspect, but uh, there's actually a pollster out here. Uh, uh, working on a series of, uh, I guess, focus groups, not polls, uh, but across Tunisia doing a six, every six months comparison. And this just happened to be the week that, that he was here. And so I got to go to the U.S. Embassy the other day and, and listen to the presentation on, on kind of the macro level view from about, uh, I think it was six different focus groups throughout the country. And this is like all the way into, to like into Tatooine, right? <laughs> uh, and, and really into the hinterland. And there's this overriding frustration with the fact that, that they, you know, average citizens still think that there's corruption. Uh, they still think stuff isn't moving fast enough. Uh, they're frustrated by the fact that, uh, you know, they, they had this and, you know, maybe everything isn't changed. They view Tunis as sort of the central part of, of uh, you know, the, the, the hub of the wheel, as it were, which maybe it should be because of the capital. But there's a real problem of, of decentralization and feeling left behind out in the regions. And so um, they're scheduled, tentatively scheduled municipal elections for later this year, October, November. It hasn't been uh, set yet. And then parliamentary elections will follow. Um the sort of big, you know, in a developing democracy, you know, you're, you're, yes, you're talking about economic development, but really the fault lines between the, the political factions are there's a NADA, which is the, you know, uh, Islamist party, and then there's everybody else. And there's a big, I don't know if fear is the right word, but there's certainly an apprehension about Anada from the everybody else faction. But in the everybody else faction, there are competing interests that normally would not have aligned with one another during, uh, you know, a, a campaign where I would think of it. You know, the only thing that that really groups together the former regime people and the unions, uh, and the the you know university students and the you know you name it, uh, is the fact that they are apprehensive about Anada. And so that will kind of be the fault line of Tunisian democracy probably for the next several cycles until 
there's some sort of a shakeout and people understand what they can expect from, you know, an Islamist government or uh, from a more secular government. And then they can start having, you know, policy based discussions, which is fascinating because it's sort of where we are in the United States now. I've had multiple <laughs> conversations in the course of the last week that that, you know, way the United States is no longer a left versus right type of country. And I'm not comparing Trump to Anada. Uh, the Islamist party here for a hundred different reasons, but I feel like we're evolving in the United States to a, those who are on Trump's side, which sort of implicitly and for a creation of the rule of law of a democratic institution, our, our traditional democratic norms and everybody else. And which is of course, kind of a, a sad commentary on where we are, but one that I think is, is important because we'll continue to see this shakeout at home where you have the chaffetz and the what's the plural of cha- or the possessive of chaffetz, chaffetzes of the world and the McCain's and the Grams and the Rubios who are distinctly uncomfortable with this autocratic demagogic anti, you know, democratic behavior coming out of the Trump administration, plus the Democratic Party, and we'll sort of see where we chip away at those fault lines within the Republican Party and conservative movement. Yeah, that's a kind of a terrifying prognosis, but spot on, I would think. Um, that's what I do. Yeah. <laughs> so before we dive into some of the more kind of uh, current political stuff and some of the stuff you're doing with 4DPAC, um, give us some more background on you. Um, I mentioned briefly you went to Notre Dame um, in our upfront. You, you uh, spent some time at the DOD and then PPI. Can you kind of give us the uh, progression of how you went from South Bend to a bunker in the Pentagon? Um, well, South Bend is, is, is really God's country. I think that's, that's clearly established, uh, as Ellie would know well. Um, yeah, I graduated, I graduated from college, uh, had a really wonderful conversation with a former professor of mine uh, who happened to be a French professor of all things. Uh, and he sort of said, what do you want to do? And I said, you know, I, I really like politics and I really like government stuff. And I don't know why I just wasted a couple of years of my life being a business major. Uh, and so he recommended I go to grad school. And I ended up at SICE, Johns Hopkins SICE. And um, uh, while I was there, 9-11 happened. And I'd always sort of been fascinated by Jack Ryan books growing up. And uh, I you know, wanted nothing more than to be kind of an intelligence analyst uh, at the time. And so I threw my resume on a pile and I got a call from a, uh, a group that, that your listeners in the male, white male, 55 to 70 demographic would know well, uh, from the Naval Criminal Investigative Service popularized on CBS these days as NCIS. Uh, I did not work for the actual or the television show. I did work for the real NCIS. There is a real NCIS, but and and the cast and crew of the TV show visited our office on more than one occasion because that's <laughs> when the show was just coming out. Um, so yeah, I, I had a great career with DoD for a couple of years. I um, I got to travel the world uh, as an intelligence analyst. They sent me to Australia and Morocco and Italy and and you know you name it. I mean it was it was pretty awesome. Uh, but I, I always kind of liked politics too much and had did that for five years and realized that I wanted to move on and, and get more involved in, in policy and politics. And long story short, I thought I wanted to go work on the Hill, but um, not having Hill experience, that proved impossible. And I ended up at the Progressive Policy Institute and ran their uh, national security project for the subsequent four or five years. Uh, and then through a, a conversation with a guy by the name of Lindsay Lewis, Lindsay Mark Lewis, who is PPI's now executive director, 
uh, he spent a long time raising money uh, in for various political campaigns and for Howard Dean at the DNC. And he has a bunch of, this is great. I get to get him a book plug. Too. Yeah. He's got a bunch of ridiculous stories about, you know, shoving uh, two pounds of marijuana in Dick Gephardt's wife's purse and uh, uh, fabricating and distributing fake ecstasy pills in the name of raising political money. And so a couple of conversations later, we, we pitched a book project that became a book called Political Mercenaries. Uh, so that, and that that came out about uh, two plus years ago, and now I'm trying to trying to pitch another one on the the first rock concert uh, behind the Iron Curtain, uh, which features Bon Jovi and Ozzy Osbourne and Motley Crue, which are my true loves. <laughs> um, uh, and let's see. And then uh, from there, I, yeah. And so so I moved on from PPI, sort of beginning of 2012, and um, uh, took over this political action committee that, you know, <laughs> the trend is that I've moved more and more towards politics. Uh, you know, if I could just get my name ID up, I think I'm more qualified to run for president than our current president. So maybe that's the next step. But uh, yeah, I set up a political action committee with, with your friend of mine, Brad Evans, uh, called PAC. And uh, we've, we've been in existence for two cycles now, really sitting at the intersection of uh, sort of progressive politics and national security policy. So tell us a little bit more about that. What does 4 DPAC do at that intersection of progressive politics and national security policy? Um, basically, the idea is that, that we started out with the premise that Democrats uh, don't know how to talk about national security terribly effectively. And uh, as you that, guys That's not know, a premise, Jim. That's a fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a fact. <laughs> Uh, from, you know, basically since, since, you know, we're all affiliated in some form or another with the Truman Project, um, we wanted to take what, what they were doing and turn it into something that was uniquely sort of bitingly political. Um, and so basically it, we operated under the theory that we wanted to have better, um, and, and solid, uh, relationships with people on the Hill, democratic leaders on the Hill. And if we did things like got involved in their campaigns financially, that we could, uh, make friends and influence policy that way. And so that, that's a very, you know, down and dirty way of saying it, but, but that was kind of the premise that we started under. And, uh, for two cycles, uh, we had a fair amount of success basically doing it as, um, uh, you know, something that uh, was was not necessarily full time for any of the six ish staff members that that we had. Uh, and then this thing called um, uh, Election Day 2016 happened, and uh, we this guy called Donald Trump got elected the president. And I woke up the next morning and thought, Oh my God, the entire world has changed, and every semblance of the underpinnings of international security may have just fallen out of the floor beneath us. Little bit, so yeah. we better think about yeah. So we better think about how what we can do about that, and if this this organization that we've built uh, over the last couple cycles can somehow be applied. Yeah, so that kind of whatever was going on now. <laughs> yeah, that kind of brings us to to the next part. Um, and uh, uh, full disclosure, uh, I'm a, an ambassador with the 4D Pack, uh, which means I give about uh, the modest amount of a beer a month worth of cash to. Uh, it's more like a beer. It's like a beer. It's 120 percent of a beer, I think. I'm in New York, man. It's actually less than a beer in most places. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, w one of the great programs that you guys are running now is this uh, "Put Us First campaign. Uh, hashtag Put Us First um, that people should check out. 
Do you want to give us a little bit kind of the idea behind it and um, what the goals are now, how yeah. far along you are? Yeah, thanks. Um, so, uh, you know, waking up on election morning or the, the day after the election and, and realizing the entire world changed, it very quickly moved from a, a conversation of this is horrible and I'm terrified to what are we going to do about it? And I sort of felt like there was, I got very lucky because I had to give a talk to a bunch of people from Sweden on November 10th, and it was about foreign policy. And I spent the first after the campaign election kind of sulking, you know, crying on my couch, basically. And uh, then thinking, what am I going to tell these people from Sweden? I have no idea. Like, I can barely talk to anybody, much less stand up in front of 25 people and give a, a discussion, lead a discussion. And then it just sort of hit me. I was like, you know, everything has changed. And the only way to get at the core issue that, that this guy is basically inhabiting the White House, uh, not unlawfully because he was lawfully elected, but, but as sort of a scam, like he's the, he's the classic con artist. He's conned his way into the White House. And if we are going to degrade his support amongst the American people, we have to do it, we have to appeal to their basic values of what it means to be an American and to their sense of security. Uh, because Donald Trump's, we just sort of realized Donald Trump's conflicts of interest, which are a violation of the emoluments clause of the Constitution, that you should not benefit, you know, no elected official should benefit from a foreign state form the basis not only for a potentially for, for certainly an impeachable offense if the conversation of, uh, advances that far, um, but is something that we thought we could turn into a message that would resonate with the American public. And there is there's long been this idea that there is no popular constituency for foreign policy and national security unless, you know, except for the Iraq war. And that's, of course, you know, when, when uh, young kids are coming home in body bags. What we wanted to do was take this idea that Donald Trump is involved, owns, well, first of all, refuses to separate himself from his business, which is a violation of the Constitution. But above and beyond that, that those conflicts of interest impact Americans every single day. And when I said earlier that I didn't think, you know, I thought we were at this moment in the United States where it wasn't necessarily left versus right. Uh, you know, I wanted to take this campaign and appeal to average Americans on a, you know, on the idea of being, uh, on the idea of American values, essentially, and the idea that, that Donald Trump was eroding our democratic institutions and the core idea of what it meant to sort of be an American. Uh, and so, you know, there's so much, so much energy on the left in the wake of the election where people are fired up and they want to do something. And all of the protest marches that we've had, the, the you know, women's march, subsequent uh, executive order related marches for the Muslim ban, um, you know, individual marches with, in towns and cities across the country, uh, you know, the, the indivisible movement, all of that stuff, you know, crowding town halls, all of that is, is incredibly important and productive. No doubt about it. Uh, but the, the one thing that I wanted to do a little bit different is those issues are kind of right versus left still. 
the idea that that you know uh, most people on the left oppose the idea that we should we shouldn't ban wait people most people on the left don't think that we should ban Muslims from entering the country for example right there's a good chunk of conservatives out there who still do so there's always going to be a, an inherent left right tension right people on the left very justifiably want to do things like keep Obamacare right I'm on Obamacare I would like to keep my health care uh, people on the right have ex- yeah <laughs> people people on the right have accepted this notion that Obamacare is broken and is going to explode and whatever. Uh, people on the left think the environment is changing because man has contributed to that. People on the right have, have accepted the fallacy that it doesn't. You know, you're not going to make very, there's not going to be very much crossover on those issues. But what I wanted to do is focus the energy on the left to say, we can get people riled up, but then we have to cross the partisan divide by appealing to people on a patriotic basis. The fact that this guy's conflicts of interests are jeopardizing our security. And I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat or a Green Party member or a communist or whomever, but you should all hopefully realize that because this guy refuses to sell his business, that's hurting us. And so we, we came to the idea that put us first was going to be the name of the campaign because Donald Trump talks about America first, America first, America first, which is a trope for Donald Trump first, right? And what we wanted to say is, no, Americans from all over the country, from all political persuasions, should get behind the idea that, that we want, we as Americans, put us first. Uh, so that's, that's where that comes from. And then what we wanted to do is organize people within specific states, uh, purple states, with elected Republicans who are vulnerable Republicans. And we wanted to make sure that the, you know uh, voices from from all over the political spectrum in those states were heard, uh, saying that this was a big problem and that the that that Republicans should be responsive to that. And so our first test case was in Colorado, where we targeted Cory Gardner for for several re- reasons. Obviously, he's a, a vulnerable Republican in a state, but also because he's on record reading the emoluments clause as a representative on the floor of the House. And this is the, the clause that Trump is in violation of. And we wanted to, uh, we, so we started a petition campaign as the mechanism, but we wanted to back that with a steady stream of communications. And we wanted to uh, get signatories on the petition and then use the, the petition delivery as, a, as an action to get press and create some negative headlines in Colorado for him to sort of, sort of help put him on notice. Um, and and we, had, we also wanted to have a very specific political ask. You know, keep Obamacare is very broad. You know, you know protect the environment is very broad. We wanted Go- Cory Gardner to do one specific thing. We still want Cory Gardner to do one specific thing in the name of national security, and that's to co-sponsor a bill in the Senate, S-65, uh, which every just about every Democratic senator, I think, has co-sponsored it, plus, as has Michael Bennett, the other uh, Democratic senator from, from Colorado. Uh, and S-65 is the Presidential Conflicts of Interest Act uh, that says that all presidents, should divest, all presidents and family members should divest from their business interests. So our ask to Gardner is to co-sponsor that bill in the name of national security. Yeah, um, that's a big ask for a guy who seemingly has no spine or no interest in upsetting the upsetting the White House. Um, it's a great program, and I think you guys are doing a great job pushing it along. And it's important um, the way you said that it, it, it's an issue that everybody, right, left, and center, can can get behind if they actually understand what what it's talking about. Um, 
before we close out, I just want to follow up on that. Um, I don't know now that you're in Tunisia if you saw that uh, Debbie Stabenow and Ron Wyden with uh, Cardin, Carper, Casey, Cantwell, and Bennett um, signed a letter to Orrin Hatch, uh, basically saying that there is some section of the tax code um, for the really geeky wonks out there. It's section 6103F4 um, that grants the Finance Committee, uh, the Senate Finance Committee, the power to obtain tax return information from the Department of Treasury and uh, read it in an executive session, presumably in the, you know, the vaults under the Capitol. Um, do you think uh, going this direction where it's actually just using an existing piece of the tax code as opposed to pushing for a new act, and plus everything that's happening with Jeff Sessions and Michael Flynn and Paul Manafort and all these other things that are coming forward about Trump, does something like this have a better chance of actually going through and happening, or is there just going to be full-on refusal by the Republicans to act on this kind of thing at all? I think the most important part in this entire story, and, and make no mistake, the conflict of interest and Russia stories are the story to follow. As obnoxious as the, the Muslim ban is, or obnoxious as taking apart Obamacare is, as, or as obnoxious as as you know, going after women's rights or, or whatever it is are, 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 all, are all horrible things in and of themselves. The story that is fundamentally going to wound the Trump White House is the Russia and conflicts of interest story. And they're one and the same because as Don, Donald Trump Jr. said in 2008, uh, a disproportionately large size of our assets is made up of, is made up of Russians, and I'm paraphrasing, but but that's what he said, right? Yeah, so I have, it's I know, it's essentially the same. Yeah, I know anecdotally um, from uh, I think uh, two or three different people I've had conversations with who are involved in real estate in New York who have done some business with the Trump Organization, and every single one of them said there were always Russians in the room. Absolutely. So there is so much smoke around this potential fire that that whether it's the section of the tax code you just cited or our push for s65 or you know there's a lawsuit that has just been launched by um you know obama's former ethics lawyer uh norm eisen uh or and and bush's former ethics lawyer richard painter through an organization crew uh, basically, uh, you know, suing Trump over the emoluments clause, and they're seeking discovery of his tax returns is, as part and parcel of that lawsuit. Um, so no matter which angle you hit it from, I think the most important thing is to keep up pressure from all sides. I mean, don't let the thing die. Every time, you know, there's a lull for a week or a couple of days or whatever about this story, something comes back. I mean, this this morning we heard, you know, Jeff Sessions, you know, met with Russian ambassador. I mean, God, for, for Trump to stand up in his press conference the other week and say, you know, nobody from his campaign that he knows of has had conversations with the Russians the numbers are starting to add up. And so the, the only thing to do is just keep pushing on all sides of the story and sooner or later, something's going to break. And, and, and in the meantime, you know, one, the, the central angle that everybody should be for together, the idea that we need open, uh, open and transparent investigation conducted by an independent body akin to the nine 11 commission. I mean, this, this should not, go on in the Senate Intelligence Committee where you can do things in the vault and, you know, uh, things can die in the darkness of, of, of skiffs and, you know, closed rooms and stuff. This has to, this is, this cuts to the very fundamental integrity of American democracy. 
And the, the mere allegation, true or not, and if Donald Trump thinks that he knows that he's innocent, he and his administration, it is in their best interest to cooperate fully and just get the air cleared as quickly as possible so he can move on with his agenda, right? Um, but at the end of the day, full cooperation uh, from everybody should be a must, and it should be done in an open fashion so that people from across the country can understand what, what's going on and what, uh, what, is, what, what is ultimately true is the strong denials and of the story from the White House, the, the inability to fundamentally disprove very serious accusation that the national, the former national security advisor and potentially the president of the United States have been compromised by a foreign government and are subject to blackmail is insane. And you should put that to rest as quickly as possible. So let's have an open investigation and make everybody happy. I mean, what is the, if there's nothing to hide, let's not hide anything. So push for the open investigation. All right. That's a pretty good way to end, end our segment with Jim. Uh, Jim, Frank and I like to finish off all these interviews with uh, a lightning round set of questions. So it's just quick questions, quick answers. Um, My answer on every single one is going to be Brian Kelly, okay. Notre Dame football. <laughs> all right. The first one is what's the best book um, you've read or TV show or movie you've seen lately? Oh, gosh. Uh... I'm watching a great thing on Netflix right now. Uh, what? Oh my God! It's, uh, it's on the origins of hip hop, and I cannot think of the name of it. <laughs> all right, all right. Skip that on. one. Hang on, Go. hang on. Mm -hmm. That'll work. Uh, all right. Second yeah. question: uh, Favorite drink, alcoholic or not? Uh, favorite drink, alcohol, uh, scotch from the rocks. All right. Um, and I probably already know what your answer to this question is, but, um, in the Trump era, lots of people are interested in doing something. What's an organization you're supporting and why? <laughs> the put us first campaign of four D pack. Thank you very much. <laughs> put right. us first us. And, uh, the last question, uh, where can people follow you? The Twitters, um, media and all uh, that at, stuff. Yeah. At Jim Arcadis at J I M A R K E D I S. All right. Frank, anything we forget? Uh, no, just to go back to that top one, Jim, is it The Get Down or Hip Hop Evolution? So, so it's Hip Hop Evolution. I watched The Get evolution. Down, which is, yeah, which is more hip. Uh, the Get Down is more fictionalized. Hip Hop Evolution is a documentary, which it's is really, it's really good. I'm, yeah, I don't know anything about it. All I right. like the, the origins of hip hop. All right. Like, it's, it's pretty fascinating. You know why they're called breakdancers? I feel so white saying this. You know why they're called breakdancers? <laughs> Tell us, Jim. Because they started dancing to the break in the disco song. Huh. Like, you know, just the, the drum and bass, like, ding, 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 ding. like that, that's where the dancing started. Huh. All right. All right. Learn something See? every day. Watch it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Jim Arcadis. Uh, so there you go. Jim Arcadis, thank you very, very much. That's our show for this week. Thank you, Frank Spring. Thank you, Jim. And thank you, dear listeners. Please remember to subscribe on iTunes. Stars generously review us. You can do the same on Stitcher or SoundCloud. Um, importantly, follow us on Twitter at, at @takingship. Ship with a P, as in perjury. We're still going with that. Uh, where you can send us your questions and your scornful missives, we uh, generally respond very quickly. And please be sure to join us next week as we're joined by another great guest. Uh, all right, Frank, where are we taking ship? I'll tell you where we are not taking ship to. We are definitely not going to Cleveland, where we will not. And I, I want to emphasize this: we will not be meeting with the Russian ambassador in Cleveland. So, friends, we take ship now for not 
Cleveland.